Uh, hey, this is Trey. Thank you for joining us for another Tuesdays with Trey. Our guest this week is someone I have long admired for a couple of different reasons. I'll just give you two of them. Number one, she knows her stuff. She knows her subject matter. And obviously people in the know uh, in her area of jurisdiction trust her because she has good sources. And I always look for that. If you have good sources, it means that you're good at what you do and people trust you. That's number one. Number two, She's not afraid to say exactly what she thinks. And, and before you take that the wrong way, she's not an opinion journalist, but she is willing to correct facts when they're misstated. Um, and I had the pleasure of watching that firsthand, uh, and I loved every second of it. She's the national security correspondent for Fox. You have seen her countless times on television asking questions at the Pentagon, telling us things we don't know. She's got great sources. So with that, Jennifer Griffin, let me say welcome and thank you. Thank you, Trey. What a kind introduction. Thank you. Well, you know what? I've had to introduce some of my friends and I had to read things and I didn't believe a word of it, like John Ratcliffe and Pompeo and others. I just had to read it, even though my heart wasn't in it. My heart was in every bit of that because all of that was true. You're a real journalist. So I'm going to start off with unusual questions and you're going to think where in the world did he get that from i want you to tell us about jennifer griffin growing up what were you like growing up oh wow you know i grew up um just outside of washington in alexandria virginia and so i went away you know after college for about 16 years and and we moved back here 15 years ago so when i was growing up I went to a small girls school, St. Agnes School for Girls in Alexandria. It's now St. Stephen's in St. Agnes. It was an Episcopal girls school. And what was amazing about it at the time, um, there were a lot of really interesting kids of people who were working in that era in Washington that we didn't even really realize who we were playing field hockey with um, at the time. But, you know, Sydney McCain, uh, John McCain's daughter was uh, on my hockey team. Uh, the, uh, Dana Muskie and Muskie's daughter was there, uh, uh, Joe Theismann's daughter. There were a lot of girls. And in that era, when I look back on it, I think we all had incredible, first of all, we all started playing sports. We all played sports. And it was that era of Title IX when girls were really playing fierce sports. And, and I think of that to this day for the kind of work that I did overseas in, in, in conflict zones uh, with the military here at the Pentagon. And I really feel like having played sports as a kid at St. Agnes, I played field hockey, soccer, and lacrosse. And, you know, it just, there, there's a way you carry it yourself when you've competed on a field and you've, um, and you play as a team. It's not, you know, these were team sports. They weren't, uh, you know, there's no I in team. And, and it just, it taught me a lot. And I had a lot of leadership opportunities there. And um, I remember back in, I think it, I graduated in 90, 1987. So it was probably 1985. And I had an opportunity through the Virginia, I think it was the Virginia Episcopal Church to go to Moscow. And it was still the Soviet Union. Um, Gorbachev was the leader and Glasnost was happening, Perestroika, and I really wanted to go. They were going to take us to visit churches across uh, Russia. And remember, under communism, the, you know, 
people weren't going to church. It was it was sort of an underground, if anything. And this was a real opening up that was happening. And I really wanted to go. And at the last minute, something happened and uh, there was tension between the US and, and Russia and or the Soviet Union at the time and, and they canceled the trip. And I was really disappointed for a long time. And I, when I think back to what I'm covering now in terms of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, I did have the you know honor to serve in, in Russia later in the late 90s as a journalist, but but that was the my first sort of instinct that I really wanted to understand Moscow and Russia and get there. And I wasn't able to, but I was able to go later when Yeltsin was in power. I think you went to some other pretty important cities too, Jerusalem, if uh, if my research bears correct, but I don't want you to grow up too fast. I want to stick with college <laughs> for a second. You majored, if I have this right, in comparative politics. Why would you pick a major that you actually have to like think about before you tell? I mean, I don't even know what that means. So when somebody asks you, what are you majoring in? And you answer it, you're always going to get a follow-up question. I mean, it's not like history. They know what that is. I Why know. don't you pick that? And would you pick it again if you no. were going back? Well, first of all, I changed my major so many times because as any good you know, what, 18 year old, 20 year old, you know, I started off thinking I was going to do one thing. I was at Harvard and I thought I was going to do history and literature because that seemed like a interesting uh, course of study. And then after, uh, you know, around my freshman year, I decided to go out for the, I stopped playing field hockey. I tried out for the field hockey team, but I decided I wanted to go out for the newspaper and the newspaper there is called the Crimson. And the Crimson is like a, to join the Crimson was like a hazing experience. It was so much work. All of my studies, you know, you had to be put on hold for a semester while you basically tried out or comped for the for the newspaper. You would stay up all night. You'd pull all nighters writing stories, reporting and the editors. It, it was run. I mean, I felt like I was working uh, for the, the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. The, the intensity of that group of students and kids and the way they put the freshmen through their paces, um, it, it was a full time job. And after my freshman year, I think it was it was about the middle of sophomore year, I met a visiting uh, journalist from South Africa. Remember, it was still it was this was uh, apartheid was still in place, and this was uh, 1988, probably 89. And the the visiting professor was at the Neiman Foundation at Harvard, and and he was speaking to some of the Crimson uh, reporters. And I just ended up having coffee with him. And he was the uh, the editor of the main, the, the only black newspaper in the country, the Sweatin. And I was asking him about South Africa. And he said, well, why don't you come down? Why don't you come and you can work at the Sweatin? You can intern with us and you can go out to, and see what's going on in South Africa. And I thought, wow. So you asked me, I'm answering in a roundabout way, way but you asked me about comparative politics. I had just, when I left Harvard and went to South Africa, that's when my education began. And that is where I learned, that's where I fell in love with being a journalist. I met some of the most talented field reporters, war correspondents, people who were down there covering the conflict. And I fell in love with seeing things firsthand, being out there. So when I came back to Harvard, I had to come back and finish up two years. 
I had left my heart in South Africa. I'd met my future husband down there and we, you know, it was very, very sort of romantic, heady times. Uh, Mandela was about to be released from prison. And, you know, I was there the day he walked out of prison in Cape Town. When I went back to Harvard, I thought, oh, well, history and literature seems very, you know, that just seems so, I, I wanted to be more current. So comparative politics was a way to jump in and sort of um, just study government, study, um, aid development, humanitarian aid work in Africa, the way governments function. And so, but it really was a way for me to get back to South Africa because that's that's where I really began to, I learned so much, so much more than you could ever learn in a classroom. I think one of your parents was, I mean, not just a lawyer, like a really good lawyer. Did you ever feel the pull, any pressure I always ask people this question, why they did not go to law school. I don't even know why I went, but I'm going to ask you why you didn't go, why you chose journalism, because you have a parent that was a lawyer. You could have gone that route if you wanted to. Did you think about it? Well, it's funny. I saw how hard my dad worked. My dad was a, a corporate lawyer in Washington, and he was in the 80s doing all the mergers and acquisitions in, in New York. And he was always working. We'd go to the beach and he'd have a huge briefcase. And and it just he just didn't seem happy. <laughs> and and I didn't really plan to be a journalist per se. I look back and the dots were all connected from the Crimson to South Africa, where I was hanging out with journalists. I went down, but, but I really kind of backed into it. But what it was is writing and journalism was just a means for me to pay from traveling and for, for to keep having those experiences. I would pay, I would sell a, a few articles for, you know, a few hundred dollars, um, uh, you know, they'd pay you a dollar a word and, and I'd write a few hundred words and I sell them to different news outlets. That was just a way to kind of uh, see the world. And, and that's when I, again, I just, I fell in love with the people, the conversations that we'd have over dinner tables, going, just that being that on the front line as history is being made and, and the front row seat that we had and just the excitement and the people, I didn't wanna work in an office and, and being out in the field and being overseas, it, 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 you know, from the moment I graduated, um, I'll, I'll see if you know the story of when I graduated and, and, and what happened and what my dad, my nice lawyer dad, who, who gave me a little money so that I could get started uh, at graduation and how I spent it. But, but it was basically just to get closer to the action. We're going to pause right there. More of my interview with Jennifer Griffin coming up. All right. I have, first of all, you, you speak with such enthusiasm about what you do. It, uh, I, I, which I think is fantastic, but I hear three different things. I hear you're, you were a writer. You have to ask questions to do your job. So you have to be a good questioner and you're on television a lot, which means you have to be a good communicator. And all three of those, well, they may overlap. Those are three distinct, uh, skill sets. So which of the three do you enjoy the most? Yeah, which of the three uh, do you like the least? Well, I think um, I think at the at my root and at my heart, I'm not a typical TV reporter. Um, I didn't train to be a TV reporter. I backed into it. I backed into it in Moscow. Actually, it was when I I started off 
doing print journalism and that's how I was freelancing as we traveled from South Africa and eventually moved to Pakistan and, and the Middle East. And then when we got to, and then I started doing some radio work. And again, this was just a way to make money. It was really to pay. Remember in those days, there weren't cell phones or uh, internet and email. There wasn't any of that there. And it was very expensive to call home. And I'm very close to my family and I have a lot of brothers and sisters. And my, I really freelanced so that I could pay for my phone bills and stay in touch with my family <laughs> while I was traveling. And so I did some radio. And then when we got to Moscow in 96, um, I, at that point, I was married to my husband, who was an AP reporter. He was with the Associated Press. And I didn't have a job. And so the and it was 1996. And guess what was starting? Fox News. And they didn't have they didn't know what Fox News didn't have a correspondent in Moscow. They didn't have correspondents overseas. They had freelancers that they were going to try and, you know, get in a few few countries. Again, it was just a skeletal staff. And, and I backed into the job. I was doing radio for ABC Radio. And there was a British reporter named Simon Marks who um, knew uh, John Moody and Roger Ailes. And and he asked me if I would start working for them. And so I worked for his production company and just and things were just started going crazy in Moscow. Yeltsin was having health issues. The Mir space station was falling out of the sky. And so there was just a lot of really interesting breaking news. Um, Russia was falling apart. It was the rise of the oligarchs. There were the economy was crashing um, and um, bankers were getting killed on every street corner. It was a, it was the Wild West when we were there. And and so it was a easy way to to jump on air and start, but I was never trained as a TV correspondent. So I really at heart am a print reporter who takes words and put them, puts them on air. And I love the fact that I started as a freelancer because I think I know how to pitch a story. And I think what I do really well is I see in narratives, I see uh, I'm fascinated by national security because we lived overseas for 16 years in a lot of conflict zones and in places where we have national security interests. I've been privileged to be in the Pentagon covering the military for the last 15 years. But I, my what gets me up in the morning gets me out of bed even you know now and I can do this you know forever. I, people say, are you ever going to retire? I, I'm never going to retire because you can always tell stories and, you know, maybe I won't do it on television. Maybe I'll be on radio, but, but storytelling and narratives and explain, seeing, connecting the dots for people. That's what I love doing. So whatever medium it is or media it is that I do that, whether it's radio or print or television, it doesn't matter. It's the storytelling and trying to figure out what's really going on or the truth. That that's what it's. I'm like a detective every day. All right, I'm going to ask you about a couple of substantive areas, but you know me. I, I have one more process question because I'm fascinated by the process. All right, you you write something and you you may have a word limit, but you also have the ability, I guess, to go to an editor and say this is deserving of a of a longer piece. In television, five minutes is an eternity. I mean, you are, and depending on what host you're with, you don't even get five minutes because the question is longer than the answer, which I'll try not to do. Do you ever get frustrated that at the time constraints of television vis-a-vis uh, -vis the written word? You know, it's so interesting. I think it's a lot harder to write 
succinctly than to write long. And so what I love about the succinct amount of time that we're given, what I usually get about two minutes to tell a story, you know, in, if, if I were on, um, many stations will give you a minute 15. To me, that's just, you know, that's really so bare bones that you really don't get anywhere. But two minutes, it's a real challenge to chisel it down, to get sound in there, to build, you know, when I'm working with younger journalists who I'm mentoring or a producer who I'm working with to, and, and we're writing together or we're, I'm showing her how I write, it's like building a house. You, the, the sound bites go in and those are sort of the, the beams of the house. And then how quickly and how few words and how can you chisel that those sentences down so there's no fluff and that but you're packing information in that uh your your viewer comes away with with just a deeper understanding i always say i never want to just repeat what you know there's so much repetition in in news and in cable news in particular that I want, I respect my audience so much. I want to give them some, something new each time, something, something factual. I don't want to just summarize every day, the same story. So I assume they're following. I assume, and wonderful thing about the Fox audience is they are following, they are listening. They're a very loyal audience. And so we're picking up where we left off. If it's a 2 PM hit today, you know, it's where I picked up from 2 PM yesterday. And I'm not going to spend all this time repeating things I've said. And so I do find that people respond that I, I treat the audience as though they have been following along, that they are, you know, I never, I, I hope I, uh, the goal is never to sort of talk down to the audience or just keep it so simple that they aren't learning as they go. I really like going deep and going quick. And it's a real challenge in two minutes to do that. I've been really lucky at Fox, a couple of recent interviews that I did um, Harris Faulkner gave me 10 minutes live on her show to um, interview Secretary Austin when he was out at, at Ramstein after he'd gone to meet Zelensky in Ukraine. And that, that was just an absolute privilege to be live and be able to, and she was so generous to give up part of her hour. Um, the same with General Milley after the pullout from Afghanistan. I went to Ramstein with him and saw the Afghan evacuees. And Fox uh, report on the weekend gave me 15 minutes unedited. That's something that I really, that's why I love working at Fox. They give me the time and space to tell um, the stories that I think are important. Now, some days, you know, I understand that we're not going to necessarily get on the air, but but when we go on the air, I used to date myself a little bit. I'd say to people, I want to be like E.F. Hutton. You know, when 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 EF remember the, the adage, oh, yeah. uh, the the advertisement when EF Hutton talks, people listen. I don't need to be on every hour. I don't need to my face on television, but I do want people to feel like if I'm if I'm reporting, they're going to learn something new. All right. Well, I'm going to give you a chance to do that. I'm going to I've picked four areas that I'm interested in. I had three. And then we were visiting before we went live and you threw one at me that I should have included. I'm going to start there. NATO. It was this sleepy little entity that we heard about only in the context of whether they should pay 2% or 1.8%. It's uh, having a resurgence of, of sorts. Uh, tell, tell us what we need to know about NATO as of today. NATO was on life support before Russia 
invaded Ukraine. Vladimir Putin basically reinvigorated NATO. I've been going to Brussels to cover NATO since the Kosovo conflict. That was the first time I went. Kosovo was a moment. NATO was having a moment. And obviously they intervened and militarily, and it was a big deal in Europe. But after that, NATO just fell asleep and the alliance was just barely hanging on. And every time, the last 15 years, when I'd travel with the defense secretary or the chairman of the Joint Chiefs to a NATO headquarters meeting, it was a snooze. You knew that it was just going to be diplomatic speak. And it was fun because we'd have a nice meal in Brussels, but a long way to go to have, you know, mool frit. Uh, but it, now NATO is on fire. NATO is on fire. You have countries that you did not think that, you know, as you said, you know, the discussion was, are you going to pay 2% of your defense spending, uh, your GDP on defense spending? And it was just a battle every time. It was like herding cats to get anyone to agree to anything. Um, now, I mean, look at Germany. They just increased their defense budget by $100 billion. Who would have ever thought that Germany would start to pay invest in and to deliver weapons to Ukraine. You know, they were criticized for a while for being slow to do that. But once Germany started and starts, uh, they that is a huge sea change since they had laws on the books since the end of World War II that they were not allowed to provide lethal aid to any conflicts for obvious reasons, given their history. Uh, that's changed. You have countries I mean, I was in Poland uh, uh, probably six weeks ago and seeing how motivated and united and fierce the Poles are because they know that they're next. Uh, the, the Baltic countries, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, the leadership that we've seen from those, uh, those NATO leaders, this is a new Europe and it is impressive. They recognize the threat. It's no longer the US and UK pulling them by the nose saying, hey guys, don't forget about Russia. You know, for years, I think the US uh, was poo-pooed by many European capitals saying that we were making too much of, out of threats. And, and, and now Europe is pulling us along and, and Poland and the UK particularly, um, you know, they are incredibly uh, focused. Uh, they're putting their money where their mouth is. They're not holding back in terms of uh, lethal aid to Ukraine, which is significant because they have not felt this way since World War II. So I find it a very exciting time to cover NATO and the alliance. And I want to understand more about all these European capitals that, again, seemed like that, that's, that's, the, that's very similar to my, uh, my college past. You know, I thought I was studying history and literature, and then I went to comparative politics because I want the day-to-day. -day. I want to know how these countries are operating now. I don't want to just go to a beautiful European cap capital and learn about history. History is being made as we speak, and NATO's at the forefront of it, and it's very exciting. All right. I want to ask you about the merger of kind of the impetus for the resurgence of NATO and one of my indictments of the human condition, which is how quickly the human mind likes to move on. It, a couple of months ago, you could not turn on the television without getting an hourly update on Ukraine. And it strikes me that the threat is every bit as real as it was two months ago. I mean, you're in the most important cities in the world. I'm in upstate of South Carolina. So maybe 
maybe I'm missing it. It doesn't seem to be with the same urgency that it was, but yet the threat still seems to be as urgent as it ever was. So have people moved on? I mean, are they not paying attention? It's so hard, Trey, because you're exactly right. It's the, the real worry in these next few months is that the world moves on. And that's what Vladimir Putin is banking on. He was banking on, he read the West. He knows that we have you know, the attention of gnats, that we're ADD. We can only handle one or two news stories at a time. Um, he's banking on A, that he can uh, create enough uh, inflation, hardship, shortage of grain, and uh, shortage of, of fuel for next, next winter as Europe goes in, you know, they're so dependent on his oil and gas that, and, and he, he's gonna see the gas prices rise. And he believes that the West is soft. They're not united. They're not willing to sacrifice, that they are self-centered, selfish, and individualistic as opposed to thinking of a greater good and that, that he's going to be able to wait us out. And, and so the, naturally after a hundred days, of course the drama of seeing Russia go into Ukraine in those first hundred days and the incredible narrative and storyline with President Zelensky standing up, you had a hero figure. I mean, again, it was, it was, uh, it was narrow. It, it was um, narratives that, everybody could get behind. They wanted to know what was going to happen to Zelensky. There was a, there was a David and Goliath story with the Ukrainians pushing the big uh, Russian bear back from the capital and the, the, the incredible you know, story of the little javelins taking on the big Russian military. It, it, everyone was hanging on their seats as to what was going to happen. Then you have other news events that start to take the attention away from Ukraine. And my concern is that this summer is as crucial as February 24th in terms of the Ukraine conflict. This is where either Putin grinds on and wins or Ukraine gets the weapons and the support they need and their fighters need on the front lines to, to send Russia home bleeding. And I'm concerned about the, the will and the cohesiveness. I mean, there's a, an exhaustion factor too after a hundred days. The ad hocism of, of Ukrainian fighters, you know, doctors, lawyers dropping, you know, they're put, putting on military gear and going to the front lines and, and you know, giving a blow to, to Putin. There, you can only do that so long without resupply, without logistics, without gas. They're starting to run out of, um, you know, the gas lines uh, in, in Ukraine are making logistics very complicated. So you're hitting that natural inflection point in a war where people need to regroup and resupply. And, and my concern is that just as Ukraine needs us most, uh, the West is going to say, well, didn't we already send billions of dollars of weapons? Why, aren't they, why isn't this over by now? We're a very impatient uh, world. We don't understand. And my other concern, Trey, as I watch this very closely, and I feel great anxiety sitting here in Washington, as opposed to being in Kiev right now and reporting from the, from the front, it, I feel that there is, um, this is a moment where you can either win this war quickly or the West can 
nurse this conflict and draw it out like we did in Afghanistan. You remember Tora Bora and when you could have gone guns a blazing, got bin Laden, pulled the special forces out and, and declared victory. This needs to happen quickly and Ukraine needs to win quickly by just dribbling the weapons in and not getting them to the right people on the front lines, not having the manuals translated properly so they can actually read the howitzer manuals. On The, the, the ad hocism is only going to get you so far. That incredible Ukrainian spirit and will to fight is only going to get you so far. You now need a little organization and logistics. And we always do this. We tie our hands behind our back and we have the greatest military in the world. And I'm not in favor of sending troops in to fight the Russians in Ukraine. That is World War III. But there are many things short of that that could provide some advice, some logistical support, some, you can use civilians to do so, but we have set this very arbitrary rule where we're not gonna put our big toe across the border into Ukraine. And, it, and you saw, you know, the embassy is now back there, which is a start, but, but it's just, it's, I'm concerned it's too little too late. And, and these next few months, Ukraine, if, if they're given the right support, they really have a chance against the Russians. And otherwise it's gonna be a long drawn out, potentially unwieldy conflict that could potentially spill into Poland and Moldova and elsewhere. And I just wish there was more urgency. Uh, there, there is, I, I don't wanna be, unfair to what I see in Washington. I do see both, it's an amazing bipartisan support right now for the war. Amazing amounts of money have been uh, passed through Congress and an amazing amount of lethal aid that's being provided. I don't sense that the White House is holding back. I just think we need, now need to put the gas on the pedal and, the, and unleash some of the, the abilities that this government and this, particularly this Pentagon where I sit, they have a lot of things that they aren't being allowed to use. And I think we need to strengthen our spine a bit, call Putin's bluff and win this quickly and not have this forever war that is inevitable if we don't fight the way, if we don't uh, support Ukraine in the way that we actually can make a difference. Jennifer, I do not want to give uh, disproportionate time to outlier voices, but I do want to get your perspective because I was a little bit surprised. I mean, I've been gone for several years. There were some voices in my old line of work, and frankly, there's some voices in my current line of work that seem to not be able to make up their mind whether to pull for a nascent democracy or pull for Russia. Mm -hmm. And that actually surprised me. I, I was surprised at the equivocation uh, by folks that sat on my side of the aisle about who we should pull for. I mean, Trey, it's a bit baffling to me for, as someone who lived in Moscow for three years and saw uh, the Russian mindset in the FSB and the KGB and, and the military and what they did in Chechnya in terms of the, 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 the mindset of Putin and what he's willing to do, the extent to which, I mean, I've been watching him for, for more than 20 years now and, and what he's been able to get away with. I don't understand why people don't see that this is not a localized conflict. This is not some backwater uh, conflict that doesn't have the potential to affect the United States, Europe, Western civilization, uh, 
all of the rules-based order that was established after World War II is in the balance right now. I, I think, again, journalists play a role and that's why storytelling and showing the images is so important, but we do have a problem when people get numb to the images that they're seeing and then start saying, well, why do I care about this? Well, I'm here to tell you, it, the idea that anyone could be rooting for Vladimir Putin right now when we have unmasked what he is capable of. I mean, we should have known what he was capable of. And people like me did know uh, when he was uh, poisoning people with Novichuk, his op political opponents in the heart of not far from London. And in, you know, the, the things that Putin has been willing to do, the brutality, the fact that he has nuclear weapons, and this is somebody... You know, what I've seen in my line of work covering national security for as many years as I have is that bullies don't get better with time. There's only one way to deal with bullies, and you have to reestablish deterrence. That's what NATO is doing right now. If the U.S. does not reestablish its role as a leader and as a deterrent force and reestablish that there are consequences if you break the rules-based order and just disregard it and invade countries and commit genocide. I mean, what is it? How could you be rooting for Vladimir Putin when there is a genocide taking place? Hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians are being taken, including many, many children into Russia, into re-education camps. I mean, it's the stuff of World War II. If that doesn't horrify you, I, I, I really am at a loss for words if people can't see clearly uh, the, who's right and who's wrong in this case. These are complicated situations. I'm not here to say that there aren't many, this is a three-dimensional game of chess and, and you know, it's not black and white, but it is extremely clear to me who the aggressor is. Uh, there's no question of that. And the, the absolute um, uh, shifting of, of uh, the, I mean, what really worries me, and I've watched this now for a long time, is how Russia and Putin, Putin is a master manipulator of narratives. He is a disinformation specialist. That is what he studied as a young KGB officer. It's what he did in Europe when he was based in Eastern Europe, uh, in Eastern Germany, as a, you know, trained at the, you know, working with the Stasi. This is somebody who has been laying the groundwork for his imperialist expansion into Ukraine uh, through using social media and the information uh, space to really kind of dupe a large part of the Western population. And I'm afraid that there are certain uh, people who are platforming basic Russian talking points, Putin talking points that comes through his propaganda. Remember, there is no free press anymore in Russia. There was a fabulous sort of nascent free press that he has basically crushed in, in the last three months with the rules that if you, you speak the truth about the Ukraine invasion, you go to prison for 15 years. R Putin has been buying off certain Western leaders over time. He has been, he's been using certain media figures as unwitting dupes for a long time. It is very worrisome seeing how it, it's like a, a, a cancer and I'm a cancer survivor. I recognize cancers. This disinformation and way uh, some platforms are, are not being more discerning about how they're being used 
is very, very disturbing to me. And it should disturb every American. And you should really ask yourself if something doesn't make sense, uh, why you're hearing it and, and whether it mimics exactly what TASS is saying and what Putin is saying in his state-controlled media to his population to keep them mollified and, and ignorant of what's actually happening in Ukraine. This is the Trey Gowdy Podcast. More of my interview with Jennifer Griffin is next. All right, I'm going to bounce to two other places in the world, and then I'm going to let you get back to work because you actually do work, and, uh, and I can hit golf balls anytime. Afghanistan, exhibit two in our trial that Americans have really, really short memories. It was less than a year, I think, if my memory serves that the uh, withdrawal took place August of, of last summer. And I don't hear anything about what's left, what's happening in Afghanistan, particularly for girls and young women or, or women in period. So if I were to say 20 years worth of investment, the blood of our soldiers first, money a distant second, what did we get for that? And, and what's the current state of Afghanistan? Well, let me back up because I just had the most fascinating three. So I've spent the most fascinating three days with, you're right, that it, it has been almost, we're coming up on almost the year mark in August of the Afghan withdrawal, which I think we can very clearly agree. And there's bipartisan agreement that it was a disaster. It was a humanitarian disaster. It was a national security disaster. It has left us uh, in a very, very uh, difficult, difficult position because we are blinded as a nation. So after 20 years of war of setting up networks and intelligence networks, I was always frustrated, Trey, that we defined Afghanistan as a war, because in the last uh, year or two, it really had become the way it should have been explained to the American people what was happening there is it had turned into really, it was a listening post. It was a way to keep a presence so that you knew what terrorist groups, if they were regrouping, it was a place to keep a presence so that you knew of threats uh, before they would come to the US. And by completely packing up every every uh, base, every soldier coming home, we have listening posts all over the world. We're in 169 countries, the US military. Uh, the US military has a presence in so many places that you don't know about, you don't think about because there aren't casualties. Afghanistan could have been reoriented in that way, and the CIA could have kept their listening posts, their intelligence networks, and the country would have been a lot safer. That being said, uh, the last three days, I spent time with some great American heroes. I don't put too far, I don't use that term lightly. These are former special operators, former uh, people with intelligence background who when Kabul fell last August, they simply packed their rucksack, bought a plane ticket on their own dime and went to Afghanistan wasn't easy to do. We've heard about various groups who helped get Afghan evacuees out. These are some of the only 12 people I know who are actually on the ground at HKIA, at the Kabul International Airport, who work side by side with the 82nd Airborne, the Marines, who were heroically trying to deal with a tsunami of people trying to get into the airport and get Americans out, as well as the allies who had fought and worked with the United States for the last 20 years. These 12 individuals, there were six of them on the ground in Kabul, and there were 
the, the rest of them were at a base in the UAE. UAE gave them uh, uh, planes and that if they could uh, fill the C-17 with people, they would keep letting them land in the UAE. These guys are so, they call themselves Save Our Allies. You may remember them because fast forward once Ukraine started and our colleague Benjamin Hall, Fox News correspondent was hit with an artillery shell and two other members of the team were killed that we called on Save Our Allies and they rescued Benjamin Hall who had suffered from an uh, amputation and other severe catastrophic injuries and would have died in Ukraine if it weren't for them. They were born out of the Afghan evacuation. Save Our Allies, I, you know, I, I would lay down my life for them because they are such brave, extraordinary individuals who did what make us proud to be Americans. They put their own safety uh, aside. They saw how dishonorable the pullout was. They knew that people needed help and they went into the fire and they're still doing it in Ukraine. And we had a, Tim Kennedy is one of the, um, you may know him from his UFC fighting days. He's a Green Beret, uh, still in the military. He was one of the founders of Save Our Allies. He flew out to Afghanistan. He just came out with a new book that we were at, he was hosting a book launch at Library of Congress for Scars and Stripes, which if you haven't read it, go to the last chapter. First of all, buy it. It's an amazing book. Uh, go to the last chapter and you'll read about what he and a couple of other characters who have who uh, have call signs rather than real names because of the former work they did uh, for the U.S. government. A guy named Seaspray. Seaspray was uh, the one who actually brought Benjamin Hall out from Ukraine. Save Our Allies was born out of the Afghan conflict. And we were all lamenting how there are no journalists in Afghanistan right now. Now, for obvious reasons, it's extremely dangerous. There's no military, there's no embassy. And so when the foreign journalists, the American journalists packed up and left, nobody knows the stories. We aren't seeing the images. We don't know what's happening. But I can tell you from people, local reporters that I know and the way in which I still follow this very closely um, uh, through social media and Twitter, uh, people are starving. It looks like what I started in Africa covering famines. You have you have children who uh, the des the level of desperation under Taliban rule, the dysfunction, and the way the economy they they nine tenths of their economy was based on U.S. Uh, uh, donated money. Uh, so the whole place imploded when the U.S. suddenly pulled out, and so the shame: girls aren't going to school, women aren't allowed to work. Uh, all of that is a, a, a shame. Uh, we should hold our heads in shame that we allowed that to happen. Now, we can't fix every place in the world, and I'm not suggesting there aren't equally tragic situations in Yemen, in, uh, you know, in Africa, uh, the Rohingya, you, you name it. There are a lot, but we had a responsibility because we sent the U.S. military in after 9-11. We decided to fight a 20-year war there. We were there and raised the level of expectation for women and girls and to just completely wash our hands of it and turn our backs, it, it breaks my heart. And these tough warriors, Tim Kennedy has fought, you know, he's a, a MMA champ and one of the toughest people I know. I've never seen such a tough person. And 
he could be brought to tears in two seconds if we taught if we we look back and remember that time um, they ended up pulling out 12,000 they managed to get 12,000 Afghans onto those planes that flew to UAE they did it they didn't sleep for 11 days uh, that was 10% of the overall US effort. And that was a privately funded group of veterans that went in there and did that. It, 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 to this day, I've never seen anything like it. And if anybody's in a position to help save our allies, I can't tell you how impressive they are and how much good they do with a very small footprint in the, way, in the great manner of all special operators and their training. All right, I'm gonna let you go with this question. Uh, it's important, and I don't want it to fall in the in the bucket of things that we think we may remember something about, but have largely forgotten. You mentioned Benjamin Hall, seriously injured. Two of your colleagues lost their lives. And what I try to tell people is, if you need information to make the best decisions, who is providing you with the information? If you're talking about Afghanistan or Ukraine, and you can't be there yourself, you have to rely on other people to give you the information. And it is dangerous and it is risky. And these three men prove that, or these three people prove that. I'm gonna let you tell us about your two colleagues who lost their lives and your colleague, Benjamin Hall, who was seriously injured, um, but lived. Well, they were all great journalists. One was a young woman named Sasha. She was a Ukrainian, but she had started working for Fox at the start of the Ukraine conflict. And what I found from my years of working overseas, you know, covering wars and living in, in places like Pakistan and uh, South Africa and elsewhere is you're only as good as a foreign journalist as your local stringers, your local fixers, the, your local eyes and ears. And Sasha was a translator, but also so much more to the Fox team that was operating under very dangerous circumstances at the start of the war when the Russians had come in and the Russians were still in the Kiev area and it was very dangerous. They went up to the front lines. Pierre, um, it's hard for me to talk about Pierre because I worked with him. He was a cameraman that is one of the most talented people I've ever worked with. I worked with him for 20 years, including back in the Middle East when we lived in uh, Jerusalem and we covered the Intifada for seven years. And so Pierre and I spent a lot of time in Gaza and other really tough uh, conflict zones. And he was Irish and had a great Irish sensibility, upbeat, positive, always wanted to know what the next story was. He was an absolute delight to work with. I had never worked with Sasha, but I had worked many, many years with Pierre and it, it's, it's a terrible, tragic loss that we don't have him out there as a storyteller. In fact, one thing I will say, and I hope I don't um, get too emotional, but I mentioned Save Our Allies and their role and this, um, this friend of ours, the, the veteran uh, whose call sign is Sea Spray, he was the one who arranged for Pierre's uh, coffin to be, his body to be repatriated across the border as Pierre's wife, Michelle, who is a, uh, who had been a journalist and in her own right and was waiting to meet the repatriation. And, and myself being here at the Pentagon and these veterans who take their duty to uh, dignified transfers um, of journalists as well as military as uh, what sea spray managed to do in terms of getting pierre across the border was was extremely difficult heroic and when he arrived across the border he his coffin was wrapped in the irish flag so that when his wife first saw 
the, the when the hearse opened in the back after they crossed into Poland, um, he she saw a very very dignified heroic uh, presentation of somebody who laid down their life for this conflict. And journalists are doing that all the time. Benjamin Hall. Oh, but what what Seaspray told realized at that moment, and it it really sticks with me to this day, is that when he started talking to Michelle, he realized that Pierre had been out at. Kabul International Airport during the evacuation and that he had met Pierre. He had actually talked to him because uh, Trey Yingst and Pierre were doing an interview on the ground with the evacuees and those who were helping. And that was a moment where Sea Spray hugged Michelle and they realized this, this, this terrible sort of, you know, the, the, the circle of, of, their connection was much deeper than, than even they realized at that moment. Benjamin Hall is doing remarkably well. He has very, very serious injuries, the same kind of injuries that our service members who served in Afghanistan and Iraq and, and uh, have faced. Um, and he's down at Brook Army Medical Center in San Antonio. He's heroic in his and making, you know, he's, he's, I saw him in, he sends me videos periodically. I went down to see him and his spirit and his can do attitude and his, his is absolutely infectious. And he sends me videos. He just sent me a video of him dancing on his new prosthetics. He um, is positive. He's ready to get back to storytelling. He as soon as he's through all of his rehabilitation, he's going to be back on the front lines telling Ukraine's story. But he has a long road ahead of him, and he's he recognizes the heroic efforts of Save Our Allies and Sea Spray and the others who got him out of Ukraine. And I can tell you from talking to him, it is absolutely inspirational. And we just think of every every journalist and reporter who's on the front lines keeping the Ukraine story alive. On a personal note. My husband's been in Ukraine for, he's still a reporter. He's a reporter for NPR. He's been there for the last six weeks and he's coming home at the end of June. Um, he called me at one point. He said, you know, why don't you come back? We have three children and we decided it wasn't smart to, for both of us to be in the war zone at the same time. But I will tell you, my heart breaks sitting here knowing that we lost really good reporters. Benjamin Hall's fighting for his life. and. But I'm proud of my husband for being over there and keeping the story in the news and on the air. We've been doing this kind of work for 30 years. We've been happily married for 30 years. And we met in South Africa at that time when Mandela came out of prison. And we're both extremely devoted to making sure America doesn't forget what's happening in these countries and why it matters. You know, Jennifer, people need information to make the best decisions. And I don't know how you're going to get the information that people don't risk their lives. So for your husband, for you, for Benjamin, for the for Sasha, uh, for those that lost their lives, Pierre, um, if you want good information, you should be grateful to people that are willing to go risk their lives to get it. I want to end on a little lighter note. Um, you're on an island. You're all by yourself. You can only have one book and listen to one song for all of eternity. What book are you going to have and what song are you going to listen to? Well, the song is easy because it's a U2 song called Walk On. And uh, it was what was playing on my, uh, my playlist when I got word that Pierre had crossed into Poland and that Seasprayed had reunited him with his wife. 
and it it uh, so walk on has a special meaning for me. Um, and if I can add a second song, because I love music so much, and it it does it is what keeps my soul sort of going as we go through these these hard reporting assignments. My good friend John Andresik from Five for Fighting uh, wrote a song at the start of the Ukraine conflict. It's an ode to President Zelensky and it's called, Can One Man Save the World? And he was just in Ukraine and he played that song with the, uh, in a very special, I'll let John tell you about it because it's really, it's a worthy story. Uh, but let's just say that if you have a chance, download, Can One Man Save the World? Because it, it, it keeps me going each day. It's a beautiful, beautiful tribute from my friend, John Andresik of Five for Fighting to uh, President Zelensky. Book, uh, well, since we're in the moment, I'm gonna give a shout out to my friend, Tim Kennedy, Scars and Stripes. I've read the last chapter first because that was the chapter I was most familiar with, but I can't wait to read the rest of it. It, uh, it just, um, he just launched this week um, and, um, and it's, a, it's a, just an incredible tale of resilience and, I think all we all right now need a bit of resilience and a bit of inspiration. Well, those are great picks. I'm still going to hope that you're never on an island by yourself. And I, I often wondered when I asked that question, well, how are you going to have electricity to listen to the song? But I don't want to get too far afield. I will tell you, you and I have, it sounds like a mutual love for, uh, for you uh, two. Uh, my song would be one, which is a song that you two did from the early eighties. Also like Miss Sarajevo. I don't know how much you listened to, to Bono, the Irish poet, but. Um... I listened to him a lot, Trey. In fact, when I was diagnosed with cancer 11 years ago, I had tickets to see you two that night. And I had, it was a pretty rough diagnosis. It was breast cancer and it was stage three. And I elected to go see you two that night. And a year later when I'd gotten through treatment, so a friend of mine was with Bono at some dinner and, and asked him to sign a, a copy of Joshua Tree. And so uh, I love you too. I love the fact that Bono went back and played in the metro of, of Kiev and went to see President Zelensky. You know, he walks the walk and, um, and th their music has always inspired me. Yeah, the, uh, I never ask anything of John Boehner or Paul Ryan. I didn't care about my committee assignments. I didn't need them coming to my district to help me because uh, I'm not sure in my district if it would have helped. However, I did ask both of them to let me sit in on their meetings with one Paul Hewson, also known as Bono. And, and I can tell you this because I don't think my wife listens to my podcast. I used to say, with the exception of her, he's the most charismatic person I've ever met in my life, but actually she doesn't listen. So I can tell you the truth. He is the most charismatic person I have ever met in my life. <laughs> well, that, that is, that's great. I'm glad we share that. Uh, thank you for what you have uh, dedicated your career to doing and for shedding insight to us on some hot spots in the world. I had four other things I want to ask you about. So one of these days, I'd love to have you back. And I am very grateful for every time you come on Sunday nights because uh, I love listening to you. Like I said, you know your stuff and you're not afraid. And that's a great combination. Thank you, Trey. I've really enjoyed this. Yes, ma'am. You take care. And thank you all for listening to Jennifer Griffin on Tuesdays with Trey.